Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 529, The Case Against Jason Baldwin. As you guys all heard in this week's episode, there was very little case against Jason. The prosecution had to rely heavily on the testimony of Michael Carson and what eventually turned out to be very flawed scientific analysis of fibers that were found at the crime scene. And then lastly, the implication that the so-called lake knife was directly related to the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. But as you heard, and as noted on the jurors' charts for deliberations, the biggest thing, the thing that had the check mark on it, the biggest item on their list, was simply the fact that Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin were best friends. So with that being said, I'm sure we don't have too many questions, but we'll get right into it. Okay, Bob, our first question comes from Michael. Did Jason Baldwin ever deny confessing in jail? If not, do you think it's possible he admitted doing what he did in graphic detail to create the persona of being a bad, mean, quote, MFer in jail? Uh, Jason Baldwin has adamantly denied ever confessing to anyone. And had he actually confessed to Michael Carson, that would be the only person ever claiming that Jason did anything other than maintain his innocence. In fact, even later, other inmates that were in prison at the same time, some of the people that were mentioned by uh, Michael Carson on the stand said that they don't believe his testimony. They think that he's lying. They'd never heard Jason admit to anything like that and just can't imagine that he did it. Uh, as far as him being a, a bad MFer in prison, I think that the homosexual implications in the, in the early 90s may not have been the way to sound like a like a bad MFer. Yeah, and since you just mentioned that point, listener Richard Clark on the fan page did make a point about homophobia in the South in the early 90s. I think he's right in admitting that a homosexual act in jail would create kind of the opposite reaction. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, like you said, early 90s in the South. Uh, homosexuality was highly frowned upon then and, and very much discriminated against. So you got to remember, so he's in jail, a, a tough place where everything is about respect and credibility. Michael Carson is claiming that Jason Baldwin did, is, you know, in, in talking about sucking the blood from the penis and things like that. 
could definitely be perceived as being homosexual by nature, which, yeah, that would have the exact opposite effect. It wouldn't make you sound like a badass in prison. It's more than likely to get your ass kicked while you're in prison. Yeah. So it, it's the whole thing is very incongruent as far as I'm concerned. Okay, next, Anna says, could the jury have asked for a separation of Jason and Damien Eccles' trials or entered separate results to their charges, such as one of them being found guilty and the other found innocent? Uh, they, they couldn't ask for a separation of the trials. Jason's attorneys tried adamantly, repeatedly before and during the trials to separate them because they knew, as, as you guys heard last week, there really wasn't a case against Jason. Had Jason been tried separately, I believe, hands down, he would have been acquitted. You know, Jesse Miss Kelly's confession was not supposed to be admissible. They weren't supposed to consider that or even know about it. So you've got this lake knife that no one said was actually anything related to the crime scene. Michael Carson's testimony was was weak. Uh, the fiber evidence was weak. So, but so the the attorneys tried to separate it, and Judge Burnett would not allow that. Uh, did insist that they could be tried together. However, the jury did have the option. Not just the option they were they were supposed to consider each case separately, so when the verdicts came down, it wasn't Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles, you're both guilty. It was Damien Eccles is guilty, and Jason Baldwin is guilty. They could absolutely have given separate verdicts, but that I don't know the statistics on that, but that would seem highly unlikely to me that you know the charges that they did it together uh so it would seem very unlikely for a jury to give one a guilty verdict and the other one a not guilty verdict, but they could have done that, yes. Next, Todd says, why didn't Jason testify at trial? That seems like something an innocent person would want to do. It is oftentimes something that an innocent person wants to do, but very, very, very rarely is it ever done. Uh, if, if you talk to any defense attorney out there, they'll tell you that almost always they will not have their client testify at trial. Uh, remember, it is not the defense's burden to prove their innocence. It's the prosecution's burden to prove their guilt. And anytime you subject somebody to cross-examination, you're just, you're just asking for trouble. I mean, anything can be spun by a prosecutor or any attorney in front of a jury to make someone look bad, and that's their job. So even though the, you know, they may want to put them on the stand in order to you know, say, for example, like their alibi, you know, we want you to get on the stand and tell the jury that you didn't do this and where you were that day. And so that seems like a good idea, but then in the cross-examination, the prosecution can find any little inconsistency, any misstatement, any, anything from your past, anything like that, and, and spin it in front of the jury, and you can only answer their questions. You can't narrate on the stand. Now, when your attorney comes back up for redirect, they can try to, to fix some of that perception that the jury got from whatever you had said, but during, during cross-examination... But a lot of times the damage is already done. So while it may seem like something an innocent person wants to do, oftentimes you're right. But most, I would say, I would have to say, I'd probably say all defense attorneys would tell you in a, it would be very, very, very rare to put a defendant on the stand in order to try to testify towards their, their innocence. In Jason's case, he, he did want to testify. Uh, he had said repeatedly to his lawyer that he wanted to get on the stand. He wanted to testify. His attorney, Paul Ford, just wouldn't let him do it. He just told him, and you see a little bit of that in Paradise Lost, uh, where after Damien testified, Paul went to Jason and said, do you see now why I didn't want to put you on the stand? Do you see how that went? You know, and they, they talk a little bit about how 
the first couple of days he was doing a good job, and then and then the second couple of days the prosecution I think Jason said made him they they made him look guilty when he was on the stand. So that was Jason's attorney explaining to him why he didn't want to put him on the stand. Mallory says, "Did Jason's lawyers offer anything?" And they're talking about in reference to the trial here, an alibi witness, or were they trying to just hide and hope no one noticed the second defendant? Uh, I don't know if it was necessarily trying to hide and hope that no one noticed the second defendant, but I think their strategy was, remember, the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. And if you read the trial transcripts, the entire case was aimed at Damien Eccles. Eccles testified, and he was on the stand for several days, and and he got, you know, he made some, made some, scored some points, but he also got beat up pretty good in cross-examination. Most of the case was regarding Damien. And with Jason, you heard the few items that were against him and the the defense attorneys, Paul Ford, his lead counsel, I think made the determination that they hadn't proved their case. So it was probably better off not to keep putting Jason in front of them. You know, any you, we heard it in Jesse Miskelly's trial, you know, every time they put somebody up to help his case, you know, an alibi witness, somebody who saw him at the trailer park or in the police interaction, you know, the, the prosecution was able to take something as simple as the yellow ribbon they were wearing and turn that into a negative in front of the jury. And so I think Paul Ford's strategy was, and I don't know, well, it didn't work, and I don't know if it was a it was good strategy, was just to not put up much of a defense. In fact, he only put up, if you read the trial transcripts, uh, once Jason's defense begins, they put up exactly one witness. The one witness, and his name is Charles Lynch, who may sound familiar to you uh, listeners who have been with us for a while, uh, Charles Lynch is out of Dallas, Texas, the Texas Forensic Science. Uh, I don't remember the exact uh, name of the organization, but in Jesse Eldridge's case in season three, he was one of the medical exam or the, the forensic examiners that worked on Jesse Eldridge's case. He was called by Baldwin's defense attorneys to testify about the fiber evidence and, in fact, told the jury that, in, in his opinion, the fiber evidence was not a match that Lisa, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, we'll say Lisa S., uh, who was the, the state's expert, he said that she was wrong, and he analyzed the, the fibers found in the crime scene against the, the red bathrobe and found that they were, in fact, not similar and that the robe could be ruled out. And the, you know, the prosecution tried to attack his methodology. There was a, some, some discussion about how Lisa had, had flattened the, the fiber before she tested it. And he had said something in his report how he couldn't flatten it. Uh, and they tried, but it was, it was very clear. He broke down his methodology completely, several different tests. It was able to rule out the robe. But as you saw in the jury charts, the, the jury just, it just went right over their head. I mean, over their head or they just, just didn't believe him. Uh, but that was the entirety of the Jason Baldwin defense. They didn't put up any alibi witnesses. It, and I don't know that it was necessarily a bad strategy. It, it seems like it, it, would, it would resonate with the jury to see the alibi. But at the same time, you know, as Michael Ware said on the show before, alibis just don't work. They don't believe him. You know, so he could maybe put up his Uncle Hubert on the stand to say that he was mowing his lawn that day. But then can you, you could just imagine the cross-examination of that. Well, how do you know it was that day? How do you know it was May 5th? How do you know it wasn't May 12th? How do you know it wasn't Tuesday or Thursday? You didn't give a statement until uh, Thursday. Do you love your nephew? Oh, you, you love your nephew. You do anything to protect your, your nephew, right? And by the, by the time it's over with, the jury didn't hear this is where Jason was. The jury heard that or would have heard that, you know, this is a family member who's trying to protect his nephew and, and not heard the alibi. You know, and there were issues with uh, the, the two alibis that Jason has said 
um, not the two alibis, but the two witnesses that Jason said later on he believes would have exonerated him were his friend Ken Watkins and a guy named Don Nam, who he said Watkins was with him that day. They went and played video games, and they saw this, who he referred to originally as, as, as an Asian kid at Walmart at the video game. Uh, later, they found that 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 person was, in fact, Don Nam. But by the time they they talked to them and they tried to recount their day, they gave different versions of the story than than Jason. You know, they were asked they were asked much later. Ken Watkins, you know, his his testimony changed several times. You know, every time he interviewed with the police, it became different. First, you know, he was he was with them for a while. Then he was playing video games with them at Jason's trailer at 7 p.m. And then later again, he says he was playing video games with them at 7 p.m. with a little different version of the story. And then later, I believe he was one of the ones that said that uh, Damien had implied to him that he had actually committed the murders. So, you know, they weren't good. Those wouldn't be good witnesses to put up. Um, besides the fact that they have, you know, conflicting stories. The, even if they were not conflicting, they were inconsistent. And, and even if they were exactly like Jason said and exactly like Uncle Hubert said, and they were consistent throughout, they can still be attacked by the prosecution given the amount of time that passed between the May 5th and when they were interviewed. And, you know, all they have to do is put in front of the jury the one question of how do you know that was May 5th? Why couldn't it have been a different day? We saw that with the Sanders and the McKays when they testified at, at the trial for Damien's alibi. You know, the, the whole point was for them to just put any doubt in the juror's mind that these people had the day right, you know, and they again called into question their relationship with Damien and the family and all that. And it didn't work. It wasn't it wasn't in the the pro category for Damien that that he had an alibi because they just they didn't believe it. So, yeah, that was that was Jason's attorney's uh, strategy was let's just, you know, the, the state didn't prove their case. We're just going to stay quiet. Worst case scenario, they convict Damien and they acquit Jason. But as we saw in the jury charts, the top spot with the check mark was Damien Eccles' best friend. Lisa says, why didn't the counselor testify at Baldwin's trial? She believes his name is Danny Williams. She says, because honestly, I was somewhat buying Carson's telling of his conversation with Baldwin, even though that would seem like a really strange thing to confess to while in prison, until the counselor came forward. Did Baldwin's attorney even know about the counselor? If not, that sounds like a Brady violation. Jason's attorneys were aware of Danny Williams. Uh, he had actually contacted them before he contacted the prosecution, and he didn't testify because Judge Burnett did not allow him to testify. There's actually, if you go through on Callahan's site and look at the trial transcripts, you'll see that there was a hearing on Michael Carson, and what that was was Jason's defense team trying to get Danny Williams to be able to testify. The prosecution was making the argument that uh, because he was a counselor, there's like a patient-doctor confidentiality type of thing, and that he shouldn't be allowed to testify. They argued it, and ultimately Judge Burnett ruled that he couldn't testify or he couldn't testify to what was said because it was privileged information that happened during a counseling session. So it was you know, another ruling by Burnett that handcuffed the defense. All right, let's take a quick break here and we'll get back into it. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, 
Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. This next one comes from Megan. I have a question regarding the pause of the season. I understand that there was some development that is the cause. I'm wondering, though, how can Bob be so sure that he will be able to resume season five once season six is done? I'm not asking Bob that he divulge anything. Just curious how you are positive you'll resume this case. Thanks. We are absolutely going to resume the case. You know, we, ha- we haven't even begun on the podcast to talk about alternate suspects and the new investigation, which is really what we do. You know, we, like I've, I said many times, the first half of the season has taken way longer than any other season because of the three suspects and blah, blah, blah. There's all the, you know, it's just, it just taken a long time. But we always cover that and then we make the shift and that's when we get into the new investigation. So that's absolutely going to happen no matter what. So uh, what I can tell you right now is we will 100% be back to this case after season six. This next one's from Amanda. Bob, can you talk about the other Jason Baldwin, the one who is much larger than the Jason Baldwin who was convicted and has some kind of criminal background, especially wondering if you should have been considered as a suspect at the time of the murders? The police did actually look into him as a suspect, and I don't have his, his files right here in front of me. I haven't looked at it in a while, but... Yeah, the other Jason Baldwin, the one that actually lived in the neighborhood where the boys lived and were killed, had quite an extensive criminal background, continued to well after this. Off the top of my head, I think there was a lot of like burglary theft stuff, maybe some drug stuff, nothing like murder or anything like that. But the police did look into him quite a bit, really actually more than the Jason Baldwin that was arrested and convicted for it. I mean, like they never even interviewed him. But whether he would be a a suspect, I don't know. In, In my opinion... He doesn't fit the profile, and I know there's a lot of people that think profiling is just junk science or not a science at all, or it's you know reading tea leaves or whatever. But I just don't I don't see any teenagers being involved in this. It just doesn't make sense. Everything about the crime, when we look at just look at the level of concealment that went into the crime, and we've talked about that just be as far as criminal sophistication. But what it what it also indicates is maturity. This is decisive action under pressure. Just given the proximity of the crime scene, you're looking at a very small, less than three acre patch of woods. You've got an operating truck stop on one side. You got right next to it the operating truck wash and a stone's throw away. Literally, you have a neighborhood full of people with kids riding around on bikes right across the across the bayou. People were egging houses. This is high stress, and you're sitting there with three dead eight year old boys. And that's you know, there's a lot of debate about the time of death, whether it was you know seven o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning, any time. You still, you're, you're right there, and, and you're going to be panicking if this is someone that, that hasn't killed anyone before. Even if it was, the fact that someone is able to maintain their focus and composure under pressure and go through everything they went to to conceal the crime scene, to me, indicates someone who is more mature, who is more criminally sophisticated, meaning they, they've dealt with trying to conceal crimes with the police before. Uh, they know what they're doing. There's just nothing about this crime but that I see that indicates whether it's the West Memphis Three or the other Jason Baldwin or or anyone else, nothing there indicates a young, immature teenager in this crime. It just, you don't, there's no motive there. 
and there's no there's there's the level of criminal sophistication doesn't match up and again the body concealment is a strong indicator typically of someone with a known personal relationship to the victims they can't have the bodies being found because they know they'll be a suspect because they were expected to be with the children i think that the person that did this or the people that did this likely think other people saw them with the kids i think they were i think they interacted with them in public and i think a lot of that explains the uh the concealment of the bodies that's why i think that there's witnesses out there that did see the killer with the victims that day people I may mean, have alarm bells going off saying you know jamie clark ballard um but i don't know if i've mentioned on the podcast but i talked about it in a presentation i gave personally i think the the jamie clark ballard sighting is is just invalid you know, after I, I spoke with uh, Chris's brother, Ryan Clark, who was mentioned in her affidavit about them walking home from school together and the conversations they had, there was already problems with the timeline. And then Ryan said, no, that didn't happen. I never walked home with, with Jamie Clark Ballard. Uh, so I don't think that sighting of, you know, Terry Hobbs out in the, the driveway seeing the boys is credible. But somebody, I think, saw them together because if the killer was just, whether it's a random person that doesn't know the boys or it's someone who does, but they're confident that, no one saw them in the area or with the boys, they likely would just get out of there. You know, say it was a, a parent or somebody. They can be, you know, I'm out searching, searching. Oh, look, I found them. But the fact that they were concealed the way they were to me is a good indicator that they believe someone knows that they were with the boys that day. All right, Richard says, does anyone know if Jerry Driver and Steve Jones were out on the night of the 5th since it was a full moon? I don't know that. I've always wondered that myself because, you know, they they made a point of saying that uh, Steve Jones specifically said that they would go out on full moon nights, patrol and looking for satanic activity. So it seems likely that maybe they were. I don't know if they did it every, you know, every 28 days if they were out doing that at a full moon. But remember, too, they, they worked primarily in Marion. Uh, you know, it's all still Crittenden County, but I don't know. I would love to know the answer to that. All right, Bob, can we talk a little bit about the alleged jury misconduct and how that affected the lead up to the Alford plea, specifically the discussion of Jesse Miss Kelly's confession during deliberations? Yeah, I think it was a big contributing factor. You know, they, the three had a hearing coming up that was, it had been delayed several times, but it was supposed to be coming up that December. They were released in August. But, you know, despite what either side might say, the nons will say that, you know, the, the West Memphis Three asked for the Alford plea when they had an evidentiary hearing coming up, they must be guilty. Or the the supporters will say, Ellington put the Alford plea before the judge uh, because he was not confident that he could win a new trial or wasn't confident in the outcome. The reality is probably both are true. Everybody was concerned, but but what led them to that? This is a huge huge deal. You know, it's not uncommon for defendants through the appeals process to ask for Alfred pleas. You know, there's just anything they can do just to get out of prison, especially if you're in solitary confinement, death row, that's nothing that's out of the ordinary. But what is out of the ordinary is for a prosecutor to the phrase people use is accepted, but he didn't accept it. He, I guess, accepted their offer, but the prosecutor ultimately has to be the one to offer the Alfred plea and put it before a judge. So it was suggested by the defense, but he's the one that did it. And that is out of the ordinary, especially when you consider this is an extremely high-profile case. It is a horribly brutal and violent crime. It involves children. These are three eight-year-old boys. Everything about it, in order to for him to make the offer and put before a judge a plea deal that sets three people free 
that supposedly they believe committed these crimes, that is out of the ordinary. And, and the way they got there is by attacking the case. You know, over the course of 18 years, you know, you you get witnesses that start to recant and then and then misconduct comes out. You know, look at the the lake knife, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute. You know, the state says that they just had a hunch and went out and looked for the lake knife. And then they find out later that, no, in fact, they knew exactly where it was at. They were told where it was at. The divers admitted they told them there's a knife in the lake right there. They knew it was there, and they knew it was there before the murders, before they even went out and dove for it. And so all these things start to add up. It's like one individual piece of this isn't going to tear the case apart, but there's so much of it. And then the jury misconduct was, and, and, and honestly, when I went back and reviewed all this, you know, I, I was I was pretty stunned by Lisa O'Brien's statement on the podcast that she doesn't think the jury actually considered Miss Kelly's confession. I think that's flagrantly incorrect. When you look at the, I mean, you look at their charts. So the, the charts they were making for Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles list, and they did it for every witness, listed pros and cons. You know, what's a good thing for them leaning towards not guilty? And bad things leading towards guilty. And, and there was something blacked out in the, the main juror charts. But juror number seven wrote in their notes. I mean, there was, there was no question about it. Jesse Miss Kelly testimony or statement led to arrest. And they put that in the con category. Which means they literally what that means is they considered that evidence of guilt. It's not that it was just a passing thing that they just mentioned the fact that that's how they got ar- arrested. They knew the contents of that confession. They were discussing that. It's a flagrant violation. And whether you believe they're innocent or guilty, regardless of that, it's not a fair trial. The jury is not allowed to consider evidence that was not presented at trial. And then, you know, there's furthermore, which we haven't really delved into too much, and I don't know that we're really going to just because at this point, I think that, in my opinion, I have, through my investigation, I have thoroughly formed the opinion that the West Memphis Three are absolutely innocent. There was no case against them. Everything was just trying to fit a round peg into a square hole, and it was a suspect-driven investigation, not an evidence-driven investigation. I mean, they, were, they, they, they started with a conclusion, and they tried to build a case around it instead of building a case and figuring out where it pointed to. But there was the issue we talked about with Lisa, that there was the, the jury foreman in the Eccles-Baldwin trial intentionally tried to get on the jury, knew everything about Miss Kelly's confession, and told his, his friend, I think, or it was another lawyer, that that, that he was going to lie to get on the jury to make sure that these three got convicted. I mean, so all of that, as far as how it affected the Alfred plea, all of that led to the Alfred plea. Scott Ellington knew that if he had to go into trial, that he's going to have to face all of this before the trial, even the hearing to see if they get a new trial, that he's going to have to answer for all this. And it wasn't his doing. You know, he came in after the fact. These, these weren't his, his screw-ups or his alleged misconduct from back then. He's the new guy in the office and having to deal with something that other prosecutors did before. And we've witnessed this in other cases. In Ed Aid's case, there's always, a, you know, 20 years later, there's a new prosecutor dealing with, you know, the old prosecutor stuff. So it, it did have a, a direct effect on the Alfred plea because it was just one more thing. Ellington wasn't looking at, well, they're bringing this one piece of evidence up and asking for a new trial. And this is how we're going to fight it. He was looking at a laundry list of all the items, and, and we're not talking innocence or guilt here, we're talking about did they receive a fair trial, and I, I don't think, I mean, people will, but there's really, in my opinion, not an argument that they did, in fact, receive a fair trial, and a lot of it was because of the jury misconduct. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, and then regarding that lake knife. Did Dr. Pretty ever do a comparison of that knife to the specific wounds on the boys? I, I believe that he did. I, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm 99% sure that there was a comparison, and I have to go back and review his testimony again. But basically, Peretti just kind of punted with, with the murder weapon in general. Uh, in my opinion, I agree with Dr. Warner Spitz's expert opinion that most of those injuries, maybe not all of them, that most of the injuries were not caused by knife wounds. They were caused by animal predation. And I think that that's evident in Peretti's analysis and testimony with him saying there was, you know, that some of the wounds could have been a serrated knife, some of them could have been a straight edge knife, and he can't say what specific knife they came from. With the lake knife, there was no injuries that matched up to it. But I, I think that he said that, if I remember correctly, that, you know, well, the skin moves and bends, you know, as, as you put pressure on it, and therefore they, you know, the the teeth of the the saw blade on the back of the knife may not line up exactly because the skin moves which is true to an extent, but it's just another indicator that he can't, if you go wound by wound, and and part of Spitz's findings with a lot of these cutting wounds uh, was that there's wounds to the flesh, but not to the bone underneath. You know, if you stab at somebody, you'll see the cut, but when you cut it away in in the autopsy, you should should see nicks in the bone. You remember Kiao Gove's case in season three, you know, that, that was every single wound when they analyzed it. They say, you know, it went in here, it was it was torn on this end, it was blunt on this end, meaning it was not a double-edged knife, it was a single-edged knife, went in this deep, and then it, it says, you know, there's a, it, it cut the bone underneath, or it nicked the sternum, or, you know, there's, we don't see any of that in this, which means, you know, if you look at, for the people on Patreon that are, are looking at the video, you know, if you take with, say, the 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 beak of a, of a turtle, or even a, a fish with teeth, or anything like that, if, if it's a pinch and pull, you're going to have all these lacerations and cuts, but you're not going to have impact to the bone underneath. And I think that's partially part of the the reason for Dr. Werner Spitz's analysis. And then again, it was not like you have Peretti saying, no, this wound came from this knife. I believe the, the, the closest thing he could do to narrowing it down is to say that he can probably rule out a butter knife. All right, Bob, I know that after the interview with Lisa O'Brien, you did some follow-up research on the fibers, and you included that information in this week's episode. In your opinion, is there any question whatsoever that the fibers had no connection to Jason Baldwin or Damien Eccles? No, well, in the expert opinions, and even when you go back and read Charles Lynch's testimony from trial way back in 93, in my opinion, if these other experts are right, and there was, and there was a, some very, very qualified three different experts that analyzed this later, uh, and all said the exact same thing that Charles Lynch said way back in 93, which was the robe can be ruled out, that is absolutely not connected, which takes me back to the the forensic examiner, uh, Lisa S., that, that testified at trial. And so if they're all right and she's wrong, then we have to ask ourselves, is that incompetence or misconduct? You know, it, it's hard to believe that one expert looks at this and says that that they're microscopically similar, and then every single other expert that looks at that says she's absolutely incorrect. 
Um, but in, in my opinion, there's no, and I don't know that anybody's ever questioned, nobody's ever come back out and done another test, another expert since the the three that did it later during the appeals process. I don't know that anybody's ever come out and said, no, they're wrong. It seems to be, which which one thing that's frustrating is how many people use that as an argument of guilt. It's it's so, you know, I was on another podcast a few months ago, and and that was one of the big things they brought up. I said, well, you got fiber match, you know, fiber evidence that ties ties Jason Baldwin to the crime. And it's like, how are you ignoring every other, every single other expert that says that it absolutely was not similar? There was the, when Charles Lynch testified in 93, he said that, you know, there's there's a series of tests that they they go through, and I don't remember the names of all the tests, but you know they they put them next to each other on a slide, they flatten them, they look at the color, they do like a spectrum analysis where they shine light through the through the back of them, and then there's like three other tests they can do from there. And, and under cross, there's well, why didn't you do these three other tests? And he's like, because it was it was so obvious they had already ruled it out in step one, and they still did step two and ruled it out in step two, and they did step three and ruled it out in step three, and they were done. There was no reason to go to step four, five, six, seven. Because it had already been excluded and, and ruled out. So I don't know how anybody still holds on to that argument. And to answer the listener's question, no, in my opinion, it's crystal clear that the, the, the fibers had no connection back to Jason Baldwin or Damien Eccles' house. All right. And last, we got to talk to Jesse Eldridge from season three last week, and he wanted you to share a message with the audience. Yeah, J- Jesse, I heard from him last week as we had a hard time connecting on the phone for the last couple of months. Uh, but we did get to, to talk for a while last week and, and he's doing pretty well. He's, his spirits are up. Uh, it was really good for me to hear from him and, uh, we had a nice chat, but he wanted to make sure that I let all of you know, there's a lot of you listening that still are sending Jesse letters and cards and things and encouraging him. And it's, it's a slow waiting game, you know, and we've talked about this in this case and other cases, the post conviction process is slow. And in Jesse's case, he has the advantage of having the Dallas County Conviction Integrity Unit working on on the case, which is awesome because we're not fighting against a prosecutor. They're actually working with us. But that also means that you have to work at their pace. You know, we're in other cases like Ed's case. We were just bam, 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 just jamming things out. And we were able to put together a case for innocence pretty quickly and then convince the, the DA to let us do further DNA testing and things. Uh, in Jesse's case, we're just kind of waiting. But you know, he's, he, he wanted to make sure that I told all of you that have stayed in contact with him and have been writing him uh, that he really, really appreciates it. He wants you to know that it does make a big difference. You know, when you're when you're sitting in prison, staring at the same four walls every day and just waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen in your case that, you know, just getting a letter or anything like that from you guys makes a, makes a big difference. So he wanted to make sure I said that and make sure I, th- I thank all of you for that. And I think with that, we'll go ahead and close things down. Make sure you guys tune in. This Sunday, Jason Baldwin is going to be on the show, and and basically, I, I brought Jason on just to te- give you guys his firsthand experience about what he went through in the trial, and also for you to have the opportunity to hear what the jury maybe would have heard had Jason testified. So you know, you'll hear a lot of questions where you know, you didn't get to get on the stand and say this. What would you have said, and how would you have explained it? So it's a cool interview. So make sure you tune in on Sunday. See you guys. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer. 
and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. So let me tell you about a new podcast. That... Sure. Listen, I don't care if I enunciate. You always it's it's a it's a very common thing with you, and I I'm sick of it. And I'm I... stopping you every time now. <laughs> when I blah, 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 work yeah. together, yeah. All right. Um... So let me tell you about. Yeah, gotcha. So let me so let me tell you. <laughs> you're gonna make this hard. Yeah, you're, right. you're gonna make this hard on me, dude. Right. See, I get more long-winded when I know that we don't have very many questions, you know. Try to fill some content. Talk a little more. You're, I'm a talker. You're a talker. Gift to gab. <laughs> see you guys. You gonna say bye? See you guys. I just said see you guys. You can't say the same thing I said. See ya. No. Take it easy. No, no fucking way. No. Take it easy. No. We'll just end it there. Then. No, I want you to say something. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. I think you could just say see ya. No, you said. I said see ya, guys. And so maybe you follow it with like, uh, see ya. It doesn't work. No? No. Uh, see you guys. Uh, Bye. Yeah, I guess I'd do it. I prefer see ya, to be honest with you. I thought a lot about it in the last 30 let me, seconds. Let me try them both here real quick. See ya. Bye. Then you can just in edit, figure out which one you want to use. Thanks, guys. Ooh, but again, you repeated guys. Thanks, everybody. I think that's the winner right there. I think that's it. <laughs> oh, at least we got some bloopers. <laughs> I hate it because I know that you're like reeling me in for a blooper reel. <laughs> it's so corny. <laughs>